Well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and go to Psalm 139. We'll start, we'll come there in just a few minutes. I appreciate that introduction, Bob. Thank you very much. Um, I'll make sure I get your check in the mail for those nice things. That was great. Uh, but we are really glad to be here tonight. Like you said, we've come all the way down from uh, university tonight, so we're happy to be here. We're a little road weary, but it's all right. Uh, it's actually closer to this building from my house than it is to university. Uh, we live in Dalreda, so we lived uh, basically just right across the street, so a little bit shorter of a commute tonight, uh, but we are really, really glad to be here with you. And I'm really interested in your topic for the summer. When I was talking to Billy about this, who, by the way, told me he was going to be gone tonight. I figured that was on purpose. The night he invites me, he makes sure he's out of town. That's all right. I'll talk to him later. But um, when we talk about anything dealing with the digital world, because I believe the theme is Christian living in a digital world, discussing the digital world is really interesting to me. And anytime we have this conversation, it always makes, I think, the old people feel older and the young people feel younger. Because the digital age that we live in now, in the grand scheme of things, is still pretty new. And I got some dates up here in just a second. It's still pretty new, but it is old enough to where some of our younger folks don't really know about a world without the digital revolution. We've got folks that, have, that are growing up now, and pretty much all of our middle schoolers, and I see some kind of younger faces around here. I won't embarrass you guys and ask you to raise your hands. But uh, we'll see some dates in a minute that kind of plant all of our middle school kids in a state of they've never really lived life without knowing what it's like not to have the internet in your pocket at every minute of every day. And so the digital world is becoming an increasingly popular discussion everywhere in psychology, in sociology, in education, and absolutely in faith. People have been asking the question for just a couple years now, what is this digital revolution doing to our faith? How is it changing us? And just to illustrate the impact that it's had, I got a few stats here, and sorry, I'm going to have to turn around a little bit so I can make sure I'm keeping myself straight. 1983, January 1st, 1983, is supposedly the Internet's birthday. Now, again, we're not going to do a show of hands. I'm very tempted to do it. Well, let's just go ahead and do it. Who is around? Who is around for the internet's birthday in 1983? That's not that old, so you're not. Okay, so basically I'm looking at whose hands are not up here. Okay, so 1983 is like the birthday of the internet. Okay, now the internet doesn't become really accessible by your average Joe until sometime in the 90s, because before that, you I mean you had to be on a computer the size of one of the classrooms out here to actually access the internet. But as time goes on, the tech gets a little bit better. But things really pick up with social media. And the first one is Facebook in 2004. Now that's not, the two, I think to most of us in this room, 2004 does not sound like very long ago at all. Facebook was around in 2004 and onward. And I can remember, and it's going to make me sound really young to the older crowd, but super old to the younger crowd. But I can remember when Facebook came out. And you had to have a college email address to get in, like you had to have something that was at so-and-so.edu, or you couldn't sign up. And I remember when I was a junior, you could sign up, and I was really excited. You know, there were some people that had gone on to college I wanted to keep up with. Now I avoid Facebook like the plague, but that's a whole different discussion. But 2004, 
2005 is YouTube. YouTube is one of the most popular websites in the world right now. The next year is Twitter. And these are still uh, social media sites that are taken over, uh, that have taken over the internet today. But the big moment comes in just 2007. So this is, and I'm not a mathematician, and I hope I'm going to get this about 14 years ago, I think. If that's wrong, somebody can tell me. 14 years ago, the first iPhone is released. And if you remember back to when that iPhone was released, like nobody had one when they first came out, right? They were kind of a novelty. They looked like a flash in the pan. Everybody wanted a, one of those Motorola razors instead of the iPhone. But now the smartphone, the thing that has really changed the way that we live really comes with the marriage of the internet and the smartphone. Because now we can carry this around with us in our pocket everywhere we go. We have access. It sounds dramatic, but we have access to the rest of the planet at our fingertips. And we're just carrying it around in our pocket every single day. And just 20 years ago, this would have been, someone would have said that's like sci-fi. You know, it sounds like something in a Star Wars movie or something like that. It's very much the world we live in. But I got a few stats here just to show the impact of the smartphone. In 2005, 16% of the world population used the internet. Just six, well, they had access to it. 16% had access to the internet in 2005, two years before the iPhone comes out. Fast forward to last year, now over half of the planet, we're not talking about the United States, the entire United States has access to the internet. But now half of the entire world population now has access to the internet 85% of adults in the United States right now have a smartphone. Ten years ago, that was 35%. So it's exploded. Just ten years ago, 35% of adults had it, and a much lower number of teenagers had it. Now, 85% of adults are walking around with a smartphone in their pocket, and 75% of students who are aged 10 to 17 now have a smartphone. And these other stats here I think are pretty interesting. I want you to think about the last time you were further away than six feet from access to the internet. Well, or maybe we can reduce that. My original uh, illustration was going to be two feet. Because I imagine your phone is not much further than two feet away from when you sleep at night. When was the last time you were further than six feet away from your cell phone? Or from your laptop? or from your tablet, or from a work computer. This stuff is with us every minute of every day. There are very rare times when we leave our phone somewhere, like maybe if you're going to the pool, you'll leave your phone in the pool, get the pool, but you're still what? I mean, just very close to it. It's not out of reach, out of access. Like you go to the beach, you might leave it in your condo or hotel room, and then run, but you're not leaving it for very long. It's with us every day, all day. Did you know that the average person will check their smartphone every 4.3 minutes? I see some smiles. I'm guessing some of you thinking, oh yeah, it's a lot shorter than 4.3 minutes. That means that we got about 45-ish minutes, I think. Well, we're getting close to 30 minutes of time left tonight. So if we were just going to ballpark it and say, we're just going to hope that I finish on time, we got about 40 minutes left. That means all of us are going to feel the need to check our phones about 10 times. Isn't that crazy? In 
in just the time that we come together for a Bible study or for a worship service. And this is like average everybody. This isn't just young people. Young people, it's much, much shorter. But on the whole, for average of all age groups, every 4.3 minutes, we're checking our phone. We got a text. We got a, uh, a tweet. Is there a Facebook notification? Did somebody like my picture? How many likes do I have? Is, who's yelling at me about politics now? Whatever it is. The average usage of Gen Z, which is the generation right below mine. I think technically I'm a millennial, so I'm what's wrong with the world right now. I'm sorry about that. But Gen Z's, your time's coming. The Gen Zers right now, which is the students that are in college right now and below. I guess the cutoff would be somewhere around beginning of high school into middle school. They're on the internet, mostly through their smartphones, on average nine hours a day. Now that's, that's on average. There are some that are on the internet much more during the day. And this is everything, though. This can be games, movies, social media. A lot of people do their schoolwork now. They have to be connected online. So that number might be a little more dramatic than it looks. But suffice it to say that just 14 years ago, there's not a whole lot of us using the internet a whole lot. We're not living in a digital world just 14 years ago. Fast forward to 2021, though, and this is something that we have to address. The technology has grown to the point, and I don't think it's a coincidence, I don't need data to back this up, but I don't know that it's a coincidence that the digital revolution took place about 14 years ago. Think about how much the country has changed since 2007. Now, I don't know that those, I can't show you tonight, those things are directly connected, but if I had to guess, I would say there's a big connection between the rate of the changes that have happened in our country and also this digital revolution. But that's a discussion, I guess, for another time. So the question we want to ask tonight, and indeed, I guess the question you've been asking all summer, is what has this digital revolution done to our faith? Now, how do we live as Christians now that the world is, has changed with these digital things now just a part of the fabric of our everyday lives? Specifically, my topic tonight is getting back up in a digital world. And I talked with Billy a little bit about this topic and basically what it boils down to is repentance. How do we respond once we have sinned in a digital world? What, what has the digital world done that affects the ways in which we repent? Has it made it harder? Has it made it easier? Uh, what are some of the wrinkles involved with striving to get over or to beat or to get up from a certain sin now that we live in a digital world. And there are so many different directions we could take this. But I'm convinced that the digital world has made it so much easier to slide into habitual sin than it has been, that, I guess, than we've ever seen before. Because the digital revolution has brought with it a huge lie and I think this big lie has had a lot of ripple effects. There's a lot of different areas it affects us in. But the main thing is this. If we want to be able to get back up in a digital world, we have to reject the lie of secret sin. Now, I'll explain to you why I think secret sin is a much bigger deal in the digital world now than it was before we had the digital revolution. And I'm sure this is news to just about anybody. But just so we're on the same page, you know that in the digital world, 
It's very easy to engage in sinful behavior. And when you're finished with whatever sinful behavior that is, you can go click, delete, gone. And you're going to avoid, you're going to dance around all of the immediate consequences that come with that sin, right? Now, back before the digital age, you had to do a little more work if you were going to get involved in certain types of sinful behavior, right? Uh, let's just use the number one example. I'm sure that's on everybody's mind right now when we talk about secret sins in the internet. Uh, we talk about sexual sin. Before the internet comes along, if you're engaging in some type of sexual sin, that's going to involve a, maybe a lot of logistics, right? You're going to have to make some plans. You're going to have to maybe meet up somewhere. You're going to have to hope that other person doesn't spill the beans if you're trying to keep it a secret. There's a lot of things involved. Maybe you've got to sneak out of your house, and then somebody's got to sneak you back in, whatever it is. There's other things. that There's a lot of work, I guess. It's not that easy. It's not that easy to get into. But in the digital age, if you've got some teenagers at home that are interested in these kinds of things, they don't have to try to sneak around you anymore or get out of your house. All they got to do is wait till you go to bed and get out a phone or get their computer or get their tablet. It's a lot easier to get into it, number one. It's with you all the time that we mentioned a moment ago. So the temptation is skyrocketed because now it's easier to get to and it's with you all day, every day. But I think even bigger than that, and I thought about spending a lot of time on that, but instead I think the bigger problem is this idea of secret sin. And it's a huge problem because our younger folks, like we said earlier, high schoolish, middle school, I was talking to our youth minister today. He's seven years younger than I am. He vaguely remembers when the iPhone came out, but he was 10 years old. <laughs> so even folks that are born in 97 and onward, we're growing up in a world where we learn our sins are fixed by click delete or clear search history, or the, the picture or the message is going to vanish anyway with apps like Snapchat, and there's a bunch of them out there that are a lot like that. So we can grow up in a kind of context, or at least our younger folks are now, being sold the lie that sins are very easily disposed of, and, and the big thing is they can stay secret. And there's a lot of things to address here, but the first one I think we have to cover is just the notion that secret can be sin, period. This quote here, if I can, let's see if I can get up there. Yep, here we go. There's a book, there's a Christian author, his name is Tony Rinke. He wrote it by, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, he wrote a book called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. And if you're really interested in how tech is affecting Christianity, this is a great book to read. He says this, technology makes us think that we can indulge in anonymous vices. And you can swap out anonymous for secret. We can indulge in secret vices without any future consequences. Anonymity, or secrecy, is where sin flourishes. And anonymity is the most pervasive lie of the digital age. And I can absolutely guarantee you that it is pervasive. And you might think, well, not that many. I mean, that's ridiculous. Who's going to buy into this idea that sin is, it, it can be secret or easily deleted or whatever? But Rinky's right. Under the guise of secrecy, according to a, a recent survey done, 56% of our teenagers have admitted to some kind of secret online sin in the last month. And if you think that number's high, 
65% of Christian men have admitted to as much. And 15% of Christian women. Now again, I'm no mathematician, right? But I'm pretty sure that 65% of Christian men plus 15% of Christian women, isn't that pretty close to 80%? I mean, just to be honest, I'm not sure I can believe that. 80% of Christian adults? You're telling me 80%? These are not the kids that have grown up learning that, you know, sin, uh, uh, learning online at least, and then applying that in other places that sin can be secret. These are adults that have seen this come during their lifetime and they're grown when this hits 80%. And, and keep in mind, these are the people willing to admit it on a survey. So I think and we can assume that number is even higher. I mean, if you can believe that. 80% of Christian adults indulging in some kind of secret sin. I, it's so pervasive because I think on one level, like all convincing lies, there's a little bit of truth to this. There's a little bit of truth, right? Because you can delete or hide your sins from people for a short amount of time. So there's a little bit of truth there. But we can't hide our sins from people for forever, right? And buying into this lie is incredibly, incredibly spiritually dangerous. And I've just got a couple points of why it is tonight, really, is what this whole thing boils down to. But buying into this idea of secret sin is a huge problem. Number one, and I'm going to try to keep this, I don't want to get down into the weeds on some of the details here, because they'll make us all blush. But in the first place, secret sin, at least digitally speaking, it doesn't exist. We think in a, a big popular thing in recent years has been Snapchat. Have you, a lot of us may, maybe not have heard about Snapchat. Snapchat is a app where you can send a picture and then it immediately disappears. And it's, at best, it's for people to send pictures to each other and it doesn't cloud up a bunch of space on your phone, okay? But obviously there'd be a lot of maybe temptations that might come up there knowing that this picture is only going to be there for a second and then it's going to be gone forever. So this app had been out for quite some time. A lot of kids had been using it and a lot of even adults had been using it. And they have been using it for less than wholesome things. And we'll just leave it there. Like we said, I'm not going to get too deep down into what exactly is going on here, but you can imagine. And the idea is I can send this and nobody's going to know. I can send this picture of myself, whether it's explicit or whether it's just flat out embarrassing. I can send it and nobody's going to know. Well, guess what happens? The idea is these pictures disappear. They're gone, you know, in the digital thin air. Problem is they don't. They're saved on a server. And a few years go by and somebody hacks the server and guess what winds up all over the internet? The secret sins of hundreds of thousands of people. So they weren't so secret after all. There was a website also not too long ago, and I'm sorry, I'd, I'd forgotten the date and I didn't write it down here. But not too long ago, there's a website dedicated to helping spouses have secret affairs, if you can believe that. You'd get on, you'd sign up, and they would promise, hey, this is all confidential. Nobody's going to find out. You sign up, we'll pair you up with somebody else in your area or across the country, if you want, that's also looking to have an affair. And you can find uh, love now out of your marriage with this particular website. Lots of people signed up for it thinking that it would be done in secret. 
Well, guess what happened? Somebody hacked the servers, and online, here comes every single person that's registered personal information. It's out there. It's public. You can search it. It's indexed. You can type in a last name, and boom, it'll show you everybody that signed up with this name. It'll tell you their email address, their phone number, uh, who they've contacted, when they contacted them, if they got together. Every last detail that these folks thought were going to be kept secret laid bare for the entire world to see. So number one, and we haven't got to the Bible yet. We haven't got to the Bible yet. Number one, secret sin doesn't exist, whether we're talking about online or not, and we don't have to spend much time talking about not online because we all know this. But secret sin does not exist because it's kept somewhere. It's kept somewhere, and it's just waiting to be hacked one day and released to everybody else. But scripturally speaking, we all know, we all understand that there's no such thing as a secret sin. Now, like we said, there's a little bit of truth to that lie. Uh, maybe we can commit a certain sin and we can keep that a secret from a spouse. We can lie to our, we can lie to our kids. Kids can lie to their parents. Kids are really sophisticated, and I say kids, I mean young adults, very sophisticated with ways to erase things and hide things. There's a lot of new technology out there to, to, to create this illusion of secret sins. And people are consciously developing apps and making a lot of money based on this live. Hey, you download my app, all your sins will be secret. Your parents will never find out. Your spouse will never find out. We can hide it from those people. And hey, you might avoid some of the immediate consequences. We'll come back to that in a second. The only problem is those people are not the ultimate judge over your life. You're hiding a sin from your spouse. You're hiding a sin from your parents. Okay, I guess you're clever. Way to go. But they're not the ones who are going to stand in judgment over you on the last day. The problem is the one that's standing in judgment over all of us is there with us in every secret moment that we think we've had. I love this passage. Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill the heaven and the earth, declares the Lord? I mean, it's an absurd question, right? Where can we go? I mean, seriously, try to think of an answer. Where can you go to hide from God? Uh, Jonah tried it, right? It didn't work out too well for him. Where can we go? Where do you go to hide from God? Where do you go to actually do anything that's secret? Well, I told you we were getting to Psalm 139. Now we're finally getting it there. Sorry it took so long. Let's read this passage and find out if there's anywhere we can go to have a secret sin. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Now, when we read this passage, I think we, we're going to feel a mix of two emotions, probably. 
on the one hand, man, doesn't that feel wonderful to know that God is always there? And that no matter, he says, even if I make my home in the grave, God, you are there. Isn't it wonderful to know that God's watchful care is always with us, no matter where we are, no matter what the situation in life is? So on the one hand, we feel great. But then you stop to think, God's always there. Huh. God was there when I went into my room and I closed the door. And I thought I was in secret. God was there when I went away for the weekend and booked a hotel room. God was with me when I did that. Matthew chapter 6 you have Jesus talking about something very different here. He's talking to the Pharisees about their outward shows of righteousness. And in chapter 6, in verses 4, in verse 6, and in verse 18, he tells the people, the Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, what can be particularly haunting here as we talk about the sins of the digital age, when you read in verse 8, he's talking about prayer. And he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. But go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who sees in secret. And the father who sees in secret will reward you. How twisted is it to think that going into our room and shutting the door is a secret place away from, uh, from a God who's always with us? We're not anonymous online. We're not anonymous, obviously, anywhere else either. How twisted is it to think that we can shut the door and sin in secret and then think that we're getting away with it? Now, there's no such thing as secret sin. I got one more passage here. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. God, well, and this is right after the verse that we all know, right? Verse 13. Now the end of the matter, all has been heard. Uh, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, right? Right after that, he says, because, for, God will bring every deed into judgment. And he doesn't just leave it there. Every deed includes every secret thing we've done as well. Whether good or bad. So those times that we close the door and we hit our knees in prayer to God, those things are going to be revealed. But we can all guarantee, we are all guaranteed that every click we have ever made, every double tap we have ever made is going to be on full public display one day. And we're going to be held accountable for every last click that we've made. So there's no such thing as a secret sin, certainly online. And we all understand there's certainly no such thing as a secret sin when we are out in the world and not hiding behind our computer screens. So we have to reject that lie that there is such a thing as secret sin. But I think very closely connected to that, and I actually have a hard time separating this, and I've really got to move quick because it's already 7 o'clock. I had a hard time separating these two points because they're so closely connected. When we ask, why do we keep some sins secret? You ever thought about that? What's the reason we keep some things that we've done? Now, I'm not saying you have to stand on the mountaintop and shout every spiritual mistake you've ever made. That's not what I'm saying. But the sins that we really refuse to confess to somebody, that we keep secret and we just hang on to, maybe we pray about them, but we would not dare say a word to anybody about them. Why do we keep those secret? 
I mean, a really logical, very practical answer. Maybe this is way too shallow. I don't know. You, you can tell me. We just don't want to have to deal with the consequences, right? I mean, why do we keep anything secret? We don't want to deal with the consequences. And so we say, I'm going to keep this thing a secret. And guess what we think we've done in our heads? We think we've bypassed the consequence of that sin. If I push delete, or if that thing disappears, or if I push clear the history, it's gone. I don't have to think about it anymore. Nobody's going to know. I get no consequences. My parents don't ground me. My spouse doesn't leave me. I don't lose my job. All these other things, whatever it is, it's gone because they can't track me. Well, we know, we know that's a lie because somebody wants to know what you've been doing. They can absolutely track anywhere you've been regardless of what you push to lead on. But I think, number one, we need to reject the idea of secret sin. Number two, we have to remember what the real consequences of sin are. The real consequences of sin are much bigger than the things that happen here and now. They're much bigger than, I guess we could say, the trouble that we're going to get in. And we could ask tonight, certainly if we have more time, we could open it up and we could go around the room and say, what's the big problem with sin? What's, what's the real issue? Why is sin a bad thing? What's the issue with sin? And I think all of us would say, well, most of us would probably say the exact same thing. You're probably thinking what I wrote down. Romans 6.23, you know that off the top of your head? The wages of sin is death. Okay, there's like three people thinking what I'm thinking. Everybody else is either asleep or thinking, what are you talking about? The wages of sin is death. Now, we know that logically, right? We know the book says that. And a lot of us, I mean, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people that didn't say it, it's just because uh, you're shy and didn't want to talk in the big room, that's fine. I mean, we know the book says it, and we might even have it memorized. You might know Romans 3.23 also. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know what the book says. But it's something very different to know what the book says and to actually believe that the book is right. Those are two very, very different things. And we can't confuse knowing what the book says with actually believing it. Does that make sense? I mean, we can read stuff and we can you can memorize the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy if you want, but you don't believe in it, right? Now, you know what's in the book, but it's not affecting the way you live your life. And sometimes we treat Scripture the same way. We say, I know that the wages of sin is death, but guess what? I'm hiding my sins anyway, and I'm avoiding the consequences right now. And I know on the day of judgment, the book says I'm going to be judged and I'm going to be condemned forever. But you know what? At least I don't have to deal with the problem today. We know the wages of sin is death. Problem is, we don't always live like we actually believe that. And I think if we struggle with secret sin, there's a lot of practical things we could do, right? We can get rid of our phones. We can set a lot of rules about when we're on our phone, when we're off our phone, where the computers are allowed, where the tablet. Those are all great things to do, and we should be doing them. But what's more important, I think, is laying the bedrock of thinking about sin properly, of recognizing the big problem with sin for our younger crowd, like for teenagers. And even for college students, the big problem with sin is not that you're going to get in trouble. Yeah, you're going to get in trouble, and you should. (laughs) Might not have said that 10 years ago, but I'll say it now. The big problem is not that you're getting in trouble. For us adults, when we sin, the big problem is not that it threatens our careers, or that it threatens our marriage, or that it can damage the lives of our children. Yes, those are problems. But that's not why we call them sinful, is it? What is it that makes a thing sinful? According to Scripture, the consequences of sin are much worse than the immediate worldly problems that come with it, right? It's a part of it, but it's much worse. 
sin in Genesis chapter 4, and if you don't think this is creepy, then I don't know why not. This is the first time the word sin is introduced in Scripture. Now, obviously, we see it in action in chapter 3, and we'll talk about that very quickly in just a second. But the first time that term pops up is right here in Genesis 4, verse 7. You know who God's talking to? He's talking to Cain. You know what Cain's about to do? Cain right here is upset because Abel's sacrifice was basically a more appreciative of God than Cain's. And so Cain's mad about it. He doesn't like that God's favoring Abel. God says this, why are you mad? Why are you angry? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is against you, but you must rule over it. So the very first time we see sin, sin is absolutely not just like some kind of harmless mischief. We talk about it like it is sometimes. We say sin is something you know I really shouldn't do, no cause problems for me, but if I do, it's not the end of the world. If I lie to this person today, if I lie to my boss about uh, why I wasn't at work, or if I lie to my kids about stuff, I lie to my spouse, or uh, if I lie to my parents, you know, if I tell a little lie, it's not that big a deal. It's saving me from an immediate consequence, and you know, I feel bad about it, and I'll be forgiven, it'll, it'll go away, it's not that big a deal. We don't typically think of sin as something like in a horror movie that's literally hiding in the shadows and waiting on you to turn your head, and as soon as you do, it's got you. And it's not like in the scary movies, well, at least that I watch, that where the monster comes out and it grabs you and it cuts away and it, you know, it doesn't show you what happens unless you're watching some of those uh, intense skin. I can't watch those. I can't handle them. But this thing is not just trying to get you. It's trying to drag you all the way down. And don't we see that in Genesis 3 with the first sin? What is it? What's the big problem with it? It separates us from the presence of God. And we just said this a minute ago, didn't we? Uh, Paul's talking in Romans. I wish we had more time to discuss what he's, what all he's talking about here in Romans chapter 6. But he's telling us at the beginning of the chapter, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that as many of us that were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We are buried therefore with him in baptism that we might be raised to walk in the newness of life. And so he goes on to say, you therefore must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And he's talking about our previous sinful life. And he says, what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and you become slaves of God. And the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. But the wages of sin is death. When was the last time you thought, if I, tell this, if I tell this person a lie, I deserve condemnation? When was the last time you thought, if I kind of stretch the truth here, or if I'm dishonest, or if I uh, do insert whatever sinful thing we might do, when was the last time you thought, if I sin in this way, then I deserve eternal punishment from God? Yeah, I can't think of the last time I thought that either. The problem with our sins is not that we're going to get in trouble. The problem with our sins is not that it's going to lead. Yes, yes, that's a problem. But the big problem is that just like Adam and Eve, that sin is going to rip us away from the presence of God. Because God's a holy God. And as we read in Leviticus, and Peter mentions it in 1 Peter chapter 1, we have to be holy in all of our conduct because He who called us is holy. 
Sin is an affront to the mission of God. It's an affront to God's plan for the world. And so when we sin, we're basically saying God's plan's here, and I'm going to be against God for just a few minutes, and then I'll come on back. And it's no big deal. I can delete it anyway. Who cares? The big problem with sin is that it separates us eternally from God. And the last thing I have time to talk about, I probably won't, we'll just fast forward to that last point in a minute. Don't trust the trash can. And here's what I mean by that. I know that's a little uh, cutesy here, but I have a point, I promise. Don't trust the trash can. Just about every time we think we're getting rid of a sin, what do you, you click that delete button, and nine times out of ten, the delete button has a little trash can on it, doesn't it? Or there's like a little trash logo, at least I know my email, that's the button that I push to delete, and that's where 99% of the emails I get go, just trash, 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 trash. But isn't it odd, and I think it's very ironic, that in the world where I believe my sins can be secret, and I'm trying to dodge the immediate consequences of sin, what saves me from my sin? What is it that saves me from the consequence of my sin? It's a trash can. I mean, isn't that ironic? The thing that we count on to save us from the consequence of my sin, if we're buying into this lie of secret sin and we think it's all right, we think we're going to get by it, we are literally putting our trust, not even in a real trash, in a digital trash can. That's what's going to save me. And I don't have to tell you, the only thing that can save us, uh, you know Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 as well as I do. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, but the only way you're going to get out of the sin problem is with God's solution. And God's solution was not cheap and easy. God's solution by no means was cheap and easy. Look in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, he says the same sort of thing in 4 verse 10. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do, if you do sin, we have an advocate to God in Christ Jesus, the righteous. He is the propitiation or payment. He is the payment for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. The only thing that pays for our way out of the consequences of sin, make no mistake about it, is nothing left, nothing less than the life of God in the flesh. Now, if we don't think sin's that big a deal, what use do we have for the Son of God dying on the cross? If you don't think sin is that big of a problem, then why, why must God empty Himself? And you read this in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Jesus, although He's in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Make no mistake about it. Grace is not cheap. The problem of sin is not easily solved. It required a God who is holier and more powerful than any of us can even imagine. It required that kind of God leaving that, emptying Himself. We read in John 1 in the beginning, uh, the Word was with God and the Word was God, right? And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It would be enough, it would seem to be enough, just that God becomes man. 
I mean, what more could you ask for? But not only does God become man, He pays the penalty that all of us owed. Not even Jesus Himself is going to avoid that consequence, right? He pays the consequence of sin for all of us, even though He didn't have to pay it. He paid it for every last one of us. The wages of sin is absolutely death, and God paid it for every last one of us. So if we're trusting in secrecy to keep us from having to pay the penalty for our sins, uh, you might as well be trusting in a glass of water to stop a wildfire. Or you might as well be running away from a train and staying on the tracks. The bottom line is it's not going to end well and it's going to happen a lot quicker than you think. The last thing I'll mention here very quickly, I'm sorry to go over time, is we need to make a habit of confession. And simply speaking, confession is the opposite of secret sin, right? Uh, sin can no longer be secret if we're practicing confession, but there's a very strong passage here in 1 John chapter 1. We've got two more passages then we're going to close. 1 John chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 5, and we'll learn a little bit about the importance of confession. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from our sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confession, you cannot be forgiven of sins without confession because confession involves admitting sin and it involves turning from sin. And I tell you what, we'll talk about Ephesians 2 when we do our devotional period here in just a second. But thank you so much for inviting us. Let's close very quickly with a word of prayer.